Our children are dismissed for their time of worship. As they leave, I'd take a second to observe the beauty of the church doing its thing together. Not only musicians, instrumentalists, and vocalists joining together to make beautiful music, but the 19th century words of John Newton combined with our Jonathan Crutchfield's new melody some years ago, and then more recently our Austin Eccles adding the orchestra accompaniment. What a beautiful collection. It's what the church does. We, we build on each other's strengths. Let's pray together. We sit in pews and we stand at pulpit that were built and bought by those who came long before us. We are their beneficiaries. And we continue to tell the story that they told long ago. But, O oh God, all is vain unless your spirit comes and enlivens the amazing grace that is among us and allows us to hear your voice amidst the words of song and sermon and scripture so that we might more fully be your people. Give us the ability to hear you through Christ. Amen. There's an important lesson that any parent needs to know, any employer needs to know, any person in relationship needs to know, and that is simply that many times the presenting issue that comes to us is not always the real issue. Can I get an amen? The presenting issue is not always the real issue. Let's say there's a guy named Roger who invites Elaine to the movies. They have a good time. They go to dinner the next week and begin to see each other regularly. And after a while, neither one of them is seeing anyone else. One evening, they're driving home, and a thought occurs to Elaine. And she says it without really thinking. She says, you realize that as of tonight, we've been seeing each other for exactly six months. There's this silence in the car. And to Elaine, it's a very loud silence. She's thinking to herself, geez, I wonder if it bothers him that I said that. Maybe he's feeling confined by our relationship. And Roger's thinking, gosh, six months. And Elaine's thinking, but hey, I'm not sure I want this kind of relationship either. I mean, sometimes I wish I had a little more space so I'd have time to think about where I really want to go. I mean, where are we going And Roger's thinking, so that means it was February when we started going out, which was right after I had the car at the dealer's, which means, let me check the odometer. Oh, my gosh, I need to get the oil changed. (laughs) And Elaine thinks, he's upset. I can see it on his face. Maybe I'm reading him completely wrong. Maybe he wants more out of our relationship, more intimacy, more commitment. And Roger's thinking, I'm also going to have him check the transmission again. I don't care what those morons say. This isn't shifting right. And Elaine's thinking, he's angry. 
I don't blame him. I'd be angry too. Look how I've hurt him. I feel so guilty. And Roger's thinking, they're probably going to say it only had a 90-day warranty, those scumbags. And Elaine's thinking, maybe I'm just too idealistic. I'm waiting for a knight to come riding on a white horse when I'm sitting here next to this perfectly wonderful man, a good person who is in in pain because of my self-centeredness, my schoolgirl romantic fantasy. And Roger's thinking, warranty? I'll take that warranty and I'll stick. Roger, she says. What? Says Roger. Please don't torture yourself like this, she says, her eyes filling with tears. Maybe I should have never, I just feel so, and she begins to cry. I'm such a fool. I know there's no knight. I know there's no horse. There's no horse, says Roger. (laughs) And he takes her home, and she lies on her bed and weeps until dawn. Whereas Roger goes home and opens a bag of Doritos turns on the TV, becomes deeply involved in a rerun of a tennis match between two Czechoslovakians that he's never heard of. (laughs) Presenting issues aren't always the real issues. Not that I suggest you ignore the concern or ignore the complaint. Say, for example, if your spouse gets upset because you tell a story about her in a sermon... You should not reply, what's really going on here? That's not a good course of action. I know from experience. And yet it is important to discern. Is this the real issue? Is this all there is? If this issue was resolved, would all be well then? Or is something else at work? Mark tells us that John comes to Jesus saying, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he wasn't following us. Now on the surface, it's a pretty good move. You have to protect the product brand. You can't just have anybody out there uh, casting out demons. I mean, how are you going to regulate it? How are you going to keep standards? How are you going to keep the records straight? You can't just let anybody out there without any kind of credentials. I mean, who's going to get the credit for it? But is that really John's concern here? Reading in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, you realize... This isn't the first time the question of casting out demons has come up. Just a few verses earlier, as Jesus and the three disciples are coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration, there they encounter the Pharisees arguing with the disciples and a father who says, My son, the demon comes and it grabs him and it dashes him to the ground. He foams at the mouth. He's, he's unable to contain himself. And I brought him to your disciples and they weren't able to cast out the demon. They weren't able. And here are these unnamed disciples and they're out there casting out demons. And I wonder, is John feeling a little bit bested? These are 
anxious times for John and the disciples. Mark chapter 8 and 9, things are changing. Jesus keeps doing things that reveal new dimensions of who he is. It's when Peter says, you're the Christ. And Jesus says, don't tell anyone. But then they go up to the Mount of Transfiguration and he's transfigured before them and Elijah and Moses are there and I'm sure their minds are a little bit blown and then they come down and Jesus heals this boy and meanwhile all throughout this all throughout Mark 8 and 9 several times he says to them you know I'm going to be killed I'm going to be killed I'm going to die and on the third day I will rise again John's not really interested in this person over here who needs to have a demon removed. He's anxious. He's concerned. He's wondering about the future. Things are so out of control and so unsettled. Do you know what that feels like? I know that when people get anxious... When there's a threat, when there's too much change, when it just feels like things are chaotic, we tend to react. We tend to circle the wagons and draw ourselves in. Our church staff has some interesting ways of doing it. Kathy has a quilt that she likes to get out and wrap herself in. And just the weight of the quilt, she said, just kind of calms her down. Carol wears one of those sweaters that's got a hoodie on it, and she takes the hoodie and she kind of makes her own space inside the hoodie. Renee gets quieter. (laughs) Emily just smiles more. (laughs) And Nina cleans out a desk drawer. (laughs) Nina's like me and like, like John. We like order. We like to restore order. If you follow me around in my life, you'll know that I'm a person who likes order. If you look at my desk, you know that I'm a person who likes order. It's why I think, despite all of my craziness, I've gotten along with you so well over the last 15 years because you're a church that likes order. You like to do things concretely and sequentially. When challenges arrive all at the same time, our anxiety gets really high. Let's say, hypothetically, we're going to be moving into three worship services on Sunday and two Bible study hours. And at the same time, we're talking about a $2 million renovation to our building. And we're also, at the very same time, talking about membership, who's in and who's out. And we're asking questions about the new faces that are coming in, that are changing the shape and the look of Highland and As the church grows, well, some people who have been leaders for a long time are suddenly no longer leaders leaders quite as often. And we wonder, well, who's in charge? And it creates an anxiety. And like John, we want to say, Lord, we saw these issues all converging at the same time. And we told them to take a number and get in line. We will take them one at a time. Not only is it too much change at once, but it's a change that threatens our identity. 
John perceives that these exorcists might be a threat to his place and his role and what he and the other disciples are called on to do. And he kind of echoes children who say, my book, my toy, that's my mommy. Or people that say, this is my money, this is my nation. Or a church that says, these are my truths, this is my church, these are my traditions. I have a feeling that John expected Jesus to say, well done, well played, sir. That's exactly what I wanted you to do. I wonder how surprised John was when instead what he hears is, do not stop him. That is not what I want done. No one who is extending my way, my mission of love, my healing, my giving, my allowing other people to have the capacity to live inside their own skin, to cast out those demons that keep people disoriented and dissatisfied. No one who does that is against me and my way and my love. Whoever's not against us is for us. In fact, some of them may give you a drink of water when you need it. Blessed are they. You may feel like they're strangers, but they're not. For what unites us, what really unites us, is not that we count 12 disciples no more, but what unites us is love and compassion. And I think of the story from John 4 of the Samaritan woman, a Samaritan woman offering Jesus a cup of water. I find this passage so interesting because there's a lot of demons in it. There's the demon that Jesus casts out of the boy. Then there's these strangers casting demons out. But it's as if one demon gets away. It got away and it has perpetuated and multiplied through the centuries. It's more prevalent than cell phones. It has more costumes and faces than they've down, got down at Caulfields at Halloween time. It is the demon of insecurity and anxiety and the need to be in control. Look at today's Courier-Journal. Every story, every story bears the fingerprints of this demon It's ubiquitous. It's like Waldo. It's on every page. You may have to look for it, but it's there in the elections, here at church, in our community, in our family systems. This demon of anxiety and control is there. And Jesus says, don't let this demon, this destructive demon of anxiety and control, run invisible and undetected throughout this community. It'd be better for you to have your needs and anxieties wrapped around your neck like a millstone and you be thrown into the sea, the symbol of chaos. Be better for you to lose an eye or a hand or a leg than to let that demon run around and create the kind of hell on earth where, as Mark writes it, The worm never dies and the fire 
never quenches. It's pretty graphic. In fact, it was so graphic that one later scribe so, was so intrigued by that line that he inserted the line two other times into the text so that if you notice in our new Revised Standard Version, there is no verse 44 or 46, for those were added later and then taken back out. The point is this, that our anxiety and our tendency to circle the wagons causes us to miss the miracle of healing and loving and sharing and uniting the person, the man that the unnamed exorcist healed had a real need. Jesus says it doesn't matter who gets credit. It doesn't matter who gets credit. What matters is the person was healed. As someone has said, it's amazing the things you can get done when you don't worry about who gets the credit. But we sit like the older brother in that story of the prodigal son, and we're just unwilling to believe it possible that others can be as pure and right and good as us, so we try to maintain our control. Fred Craddock paints a beautiful picture for me of an older brother who's out in his front yard cutting grass one day. When down the street at that house that's sort of sketchy, you know the house on every block, there's one, kind of a little different people, suddenly a group of cars pull up in front of this house and all kinds of people are getting out and Craddock notes there wasn't a decent car in the whole group. There were a bunch of jalopies pulling up and burning oil and doing all kinds of things. All these people get out and they go in the house and then presently here comes another car that pulls up and Craddock says he's mowing the grass real slow so he can kind of see what's going on. And out of the car steps well, isn't that that girl that lives there? She can't be 17. She's got a baby in her hand. That was a little baby swaddled up and in her arms. And all the folks come out of the house and they're so happy to see her. They're welcoming her. They're looking at the little baby. They're all making their way into the house. They see Craddock looking down the street. They say, hey, come on. We're having a party. Everyone's invited. We're having cake. Come on down. Have some cake. And Craddock says, well, I'm not going down there. You can't. I can't condone that. She's not one of us. That's not the decent. That's not the way things go in order. I imagine that Jesus' words to John don't stop them. Don't stop them. I imagine that at first that made John even more anxious. Those who aren't against us are for us. They're with us. Well, I thought there were just 12 of us. I mean, now are even these boundaries going to be more porous? I mean, is the clarity that we so desire going to be muddied even more? And on top of that, Jesus, there he is again, saying that we're wrong, saying that we're stupid. I 
I talked to Bill Wilson this week. Bill is a wonderful friend, longtime friend. He's now the executive director of an organization called the Center for Congregational Health. I was talking with Bill about all these converging issues that are happening here in the life of Highland. He made this statement to me. Joe, no church, no church gets to choose peace and quiet. The sleepy church on the corner is a dead man walking. He then pointed me to a book written by the person who first developed Visa and the credit card system called The Birth of the Chaotic Age. Chaotic is a word that he made up. It's a conflation of the word chaos and order. I did what any good student would do. I read the uh, book review on uh, Amazon to understand what this book was about. (laughs) And essentially the book is about the truth that organizations that try to be command and control, try to always keep the order, those kind of organizations are falling apart because they don't address the diversity and the complexity of the society that we live in. And the solution, he says, is to understand that the chaos of competition and the order of cooperation can, in fact, coexist and thrive and succeed. Chaos and difference and the we've never done it that way way is now what he calls the new normal. Or I would say it's a sign of the kingdom, the reign of God breaking in. I have a feeling that Jesus' words initially made those disciples more anxious. I hope they stuck around long enough to discover that ultimately his word to John that day was reassuring because it said to him and to us, the reign of God is bigger than you can ever imagine, than you can ever see. And where we see only chaos, God is able to see order. And where we see competition and competing fabrics and colors and textures and people and ways, God sees this tapestry that's being woven together. Where we see only loss of control, maybe, maybe, that's when God has a chance to be in control. And where we see enemies and competitors and threats, what God sees is siblings, partners, who have lost their way and have diverged and need to be called back together. Only then, I think, only then that demon that got away can be cast out for good. Then we can be less anxious, less fearful. Jesus said everyone will be salted with fire. Everyone's going to go through these challenges, but if you'll let it work on you, if you'll let it change you, you can grow, we can grow into a new day. 
Have salt in yourself, said Jesus. Grow. And then be at peace with each other. Let's pray together. We much prefer, O oh God, to control things ourselves, our lives, our families, our careers, our church, our nation. We shall trust that your spirit sees more, knows more, and can make more happen than we could ever dream. Glory to you. Amen.